An expedition sounds like it might be fun. An expedition could be full of surprise, could be full of adventure, could even include discovery. Probably the most famous expedition in our nation's history was that of Lewis and Clark. You know, it wasn't that long ago that this whole part of the western United States was a mystery to European settlers. Thomas Jefferson commissioned Meriwether Lewis and William Clark to find a waterway connecting the Gulf of Mexico to the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, right. (laughs) Todd Bolsinger is an author who writes about that expedition, and he explains how after 15 months of a journey that Lewis and Clark had finally arrived at the headwaters, the source of the Missouri River. The expectation at that time was that they would simply pull up their canoes out of the water, carry them a short distance over land, and find the headwaters for the Columbia River, and then float gently down into the Pacific Ocean. Bolsinger recounts how what Lewis actually discovered was that 300 years of experts had all been completely and utterly wrong. In front of him was not a gentle slope down to a navigable river running to the Pacific Ocean, but the Rocky Mountains. There was no Northwest Passage, no navigable river, no water route. What lay before them was nothing like what was behind them. There there were no experts, no maps, no best practices, and no sure guides who could lead them safely and successfully. The idea of an expedition is sometimes more enjoyable than the experience of one. I can't help but feel that life is more expeditionary these days. Life feels like even if we haven't moved or changed locations, that somehow the ground has shifted from underneath us. Whether it's COVID, whether it's cultural upheaval, whatever it might be, it seems like the setting has changed and somehow we've gone off the map a bit. It feels like somehow we're, we're not in such familiar surroundings like we used to be. There's one thing that's key in any expedition. There's one ingredient that's essential for anyone to be able to make their way, and that's a key ingredient called hope. Hope is what allows us to continue to take the next step, even when we're not sure of which step to take. Hope is that thing that looks on the horizon and just trusts that there is a better day in front of us. Hope is what keeps us going when there are no experts, no maps, no best practices, and no sure guides who could lead us safely and successfully. The author of Hebrews knows how critical hope is for the Christian life. We've seen this over and over, that there are warning passages contained in the book of Hebrews that are meant to alarm us or alert us to the fact that it's possible for us in an expeditionary kind of life to start to compromise our faith, to start to lose hope and maybe sacrifice some of what we used to hold on to tightly, what we used to be committed to. But the emphasis that we need to take is that hope is the key ingredient for a faith that lasts. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 13 through 20. 
We saw last week, though, a key warning passage that's in the book of Hebrews. The, the recipients of that letter or book or sermon, more than likely, those recipients were facing circumstances that were difficult. They were facing opposition to their faith. They were facing conditions that would inspire them to give up their faith in some way. And, of course, the urge is that they would not do that, but that they would actually maintain hope. So before we get to verse 13, let's go back to 11 and 12 and remind ourselves of what was said last week to help set the stage for where we're going this week. Here's what was said in verse 11. The author says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, or we heard last week, dull of hearing, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So a couple of key ideas cast a shadow on this passage this morning. It's that idea that we would have the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, and that we would be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So that's the backdrop for where we are going this morning as we get into verse 13. We want to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Okay, let's look at 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Okay, stop right there. If ever there was a man who knew what it was like to be on expedition, it was Abraham. Abraham was a man who, back in Genesis 12, God had called to. He's around the age 75, and God has these remarkable words for Abraham. He says, and he's referred to at this stage of his life simply as Abram, but he says to him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Think about this call from God. Go away from everything that's familiar to you to a land that I will show you. How would you like that to be the, the call on your own life? Just pack up and go, and then I'll tell you where to go later. Leave everything that's familiar to you, your extended family, the people who you've known all of your life, and just go. But along with that call is this marvelous promise that I'm going to bless you and I am going to bless the entire world through you. As we look at Abraham's story unfold in the chapters of Genesis, we see these peaks and valleys of faith. Abraham has his great moments, but he has plenty of blunders along the way as well. Just a couple pages later in chapter 15, God restates the promise and even adds a dimension to it where he tells him in chapter 15, it says that he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven, Abraham, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. The only problem here is that Abraham and his wife Sarah are infertile, and they are getting really old, and they have no descendants at this point. But God is saying your descendants will one day be like all the stars in heaven. 
What an amazing promise. And as we keep reading, then we see again how Abraham and his wife Sarah, through multiple schemes and issues of manipulation, almost jeopardize the promise of God. But God's promise proves to be unfailing. God in his faithfulness still brings it about. And the high mark of Abraham's life is in chapter 22, which is where this passage in Hebrews 6 is pointing to. There is another expedition within Abraham's life where God tells him, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Notice the echo there of that original call in Genesis 12. Go to this place and then I'll show you specifically where to go. Abraham, though, by this point has learned to trust God's promises. He knows that God is faithful. He knows that God's promises are unfailing. We see a couple of examples of that here. In verse 5, Abraham has other people with him, other young men who are helping him and his son Isaac. And Abraham explains to them, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And then later on in verse 8, Abraham says to Isaac, when Isaac says, Daddy, where's the lamb? Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. It's a familiar story to many of us. God provides a sacrificial substitute at the very last moment. But it's right after that happens. After Abraham offers the sacrifice that God swears by himself. God says this, by myself I have sworn, this is verse 16 of Genesis 22, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall, shall possess the gate of his enemies. And he goes on and explains the fullness of the promise that he makes. But what Abraham learned, that's an example worth imitating for us, is that Abraham learned that God's promises are trustworthy. He learned that God's promises are unfailing. Again, Abraham and Sarah had jeopardized God's promises in their life because they had tried to manipulate and scheme their way into helping God or finding some alternatives to God's promise. But God's promises proved faithful and because of that, Abraham is an example worth imitating. But we would be mistaken if we were to put all of our attention on Abraham, because actually the emphasis of this passage is not as much on Abraham himself as it is on the one who made the promise to Abraham. God is the one who swore by himself here to re-emphasize his promise here. And through Abraham's life, we see how God's promises are unfailing. But let's just step back for a second, because when we start talking about promises, we can't help but just think about the weight that promises have in our own world. We live in a world where promises are broken all the time. Words are cheap and often empty. I'll believe it when I see it is a common phrase in our culture and our society. There are several different reasons why someone may break their promises. One reason here, if you go to the next slide, Heidi. One type of broken promise is a change in desire or commitment. 
Along the way, we make a promise, but then down the road, for whatever reason, we change our mind. We just simply decide that we want to do something other than what we have promised back then. We want to do something different, change our mind, and our promise is broken. Another way that's far more sinister is deceit. This is a promise that we make that we never had any intention of following through on. It's a promise where we just issue the promise in order to get something in the immediate term, but we know we're not actually going to fulfill it. We're not actually going to do what we say. And then in the third case, something that's not so sinister is an overpromise. Maybe we didn't quite realize the fullness of what we were saying, but when we get to the moment where it's time to fulfill the promise, we realize there's no way we can possibly live up to what we had promised. We realize that the cost is too high or the commitment is too great and we just cannot do this. It's our bad, but it's an overpromise. When we think about these different types of broken promises, we can't help but project that onto the claim that God made a promise. Is God going to also fall into these categories? Is he subject to them as well? See, when it comes to promises that are made by people, there's always an element of wishing involved. The hope that comes from a promise that somebody makes is a hope that involves an element of uncertainty. And so we wish, we want it to come true. But one of the key differences between a promise made and the hope offered by a human and God is that a human makes us wish for something and hope for something in a wishful way. But with God, it's not an issue of wishing, but always of waiting. We don't have to wish or to have this kind of uncertainty when God makes a promise. But we do have to wait for it. So let's keep reading in the text. Because here in verse 16, this is what is said next. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, it's a mouthful, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So when we read this in verse 16, the author is just saying that human beings do this. We swear by something greater than ourselves. Think of the different places or situations where we might make an oath as people. Little children on a playground will say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye to try to reinforce that something is true that they're saying. They're calling down curses on themselves. But as adults, hopefully we've moved a little beyond that. And we think of like a courtroom setting, a legal setting, where we swear to tell the truth, so help me God. We appeal to a higher authority. I was in the military. Some of you have been in the military or in government roles. And of course, there's an oath of office that people take. And there, you swear, like in my case, to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And you end with, so help me God. It's always an appeal to a higher authority. That's what we do as human beings. So when God makes an oath, we should not think that, like in Abraham's case, that he was maybe 85% sure that he was actually going to live up to his promise. But then when Abraham passed the test in Genesis 22, offering his son Isaac, that then God was 100% sure, and he just went ahead and said, okay, I really mean it this time. 
That's not what's going on. Instead, what God is doing here in verse 17 is he is desiring to show more convincingly to people, the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. God's unfailing promises are embedded in his unchangeable purposes. We don't have to worry about God's purpose changing. That's why God's purpose all along was to fulfill the promise to Abraham to bless the world. There was no sudden change of mind that he might have had. God's purpose is unchanging. And so God, desiring to show people, he, he stoops to the level of humanity by offering an oath, by swearing, saying, surely, I swear by my name, by myself, I will do this. He wants us to be convinced of the truthfulness of the promise that he has made. It's just an example of one of the multifaceted ways that God is gracious towards us. God is doing something he does not need to do here because his word is true whether he swears by it or not. He doesn't have to say, okay, I swear by myself. You can really bank on it now. Whenever God issues a promise, we can trust it. It is gold. It is going to happen. But in this case, God wants us to be even more convinced, so he swears by himself. What a marvelous picture of his grace. And so he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, this is probably referring to God's promise and his oath or his promise and his unchangeable purpose in which it is impossible for God to lie. Okay, I'm going to interrupt the flow of thought here for a second and go back to our three different types of broken promises. Okay, we said earlier that there's a change in desire or commitment, but in verse 17 here, what we see is that God's unchanging purposes are what his promises flow out of. We don't have to worry about God changing his commitment. We don't have to worry about his resolve giving in somehow. But God's purposes will never shift. We don't have to worry then about him breaking his promise because his purpose somehow changed down the road. The second more sinister one of deceit is also something that's addressed here too because verse 18 tells us it's impossible for God to lie. Maybe you're thinking, well, I thought nothing was impossible for God. No, it is impossible for God to lie, but that's not a problem. That's not a weakness. God cannot act in a way that is contrary to his character. It is impossible for God to lie. So let's go back to the text now. Because the text says that God did these things. He offered this oath so that we would be convinced, and ultimately, this is the bottom line, so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the what? The hope set before us. God wants us to be hopeful about his promise, about his unchanging purpose. The idea of fleeing for refuge here is somewhat ironic. Because as I said earlier, and as we've said in previous weeks, these are people facing some kind of opposition with regard to their faith. One of the ways that someone might seek refuge in that kind of a setting is to simply loosen your grip a little bit on your convictions. Just to let go and be a little more loose with your faith in general. Maybe don't be so public with the way that you believe. Maybe don't be so 
convinced and convicted by what you hold to. That's one way of seeking refuge. That could help alleviate the pressure that you're experiencing in your life. But of course, that is a physical, material kind of refuge, and it is not the refuge that's spoken of here, because the true danger that we need refuge from is a spiritual danger. And instead of loosening our grip, we're actually called to tighten our grip, to hold fast to the hope set before us. This is what we are called to, to seek refuge by holding fast. This is the true refuge that we need. Maybe this morning, though, you're here and you feel like, okay, I see that, but I really don't feel in my life like I'm in that great of a need to seek refuge. My life is pretty easy, maybe even mundane a little bit. I really don't understand why I would need to seek refuge and hope quite this way. If that's in your mind at all, let me just offer these words from Tim Keller. It's actually a little mental exercise, a thought experiment that we might go through. He says this, imagine you have two women of the same age, the same socioeconomic status, the same educational level, and even the same temperament. You hire both of them and say to each, you are part of an assembly line, and I want you to put part A into slot B and then hand what you have assembled to someone else. I want you to do that over and over for eight hours a day. You put them in identical rooms with identical lighting, temperature, ventilation, all the variables match up here. You give them the very same number of breaks in a day. It is very boring work. No kidding. Their conditions are the same in every way except for one difference. You tell the first woman that at the end of the year, you will pay her $30,000. And you tell the second woman that at the end of the year, you will pay her $30 million. After a couple of weeks, the first woman will be saying, isn't this tedious? Isn't it driving you insane? Aren't you thinking about quitting? And the second woman will say, no, <laughs> this is perfectly acceptable. In fact, I whistle while I work. What is going on? You have two human beings who are experiencing identical circumstances in radically different ways. What makes the difference? It's their expectation of the future. What we believe about our future completely controls how we are experiencing our present. Hope is always looking off into the horizon, but hope gives us a present day benefit as we look off towards a better future. This is the hope that sustains us in our lives, that keeps us going so that we do not loosen our grip on our faith. We need this kind of hope. And maybe this morning you can relate to kind of a mundane life or experience of life. But I also know that some of us in this room are in a place of needing to flee for refuge. You are feeling the opposition towards your faith. You do know that you are being asked to adopt the values, adopt the mindset, the philosophy, the beliefs that run contrary to the gospel, that run contrary to our faith. It could cost you your livelihood. It could jeopardize your job, your employment. It could jeopardize relationships that you're facing. And in such a case, you need desperately to grasp on to this hope, to not compromise in your faith. See, the beautiful thing about Christian hope is that it doesn't turn a blind eye to the realities of the world or the culture, but it actually embraces them head on. 
It accounts for all of the realities of opposition and even persecution that we might face in our lives. To see that, we're going to keep reading these last two verses of our passage this morning. Here's what it says in verse 19. We have this. What is this? The hope set before us as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. An anchor is especially valuable to those who are facing a storm. An anchor is a source of confidence. It's a, for, it's a source of security. When the wind is hard, blowing hard and the waves are high, an anchor is what keeps us in the right spot. It keeps us placed. Even on a calm day, though, it doesn't take much to blow a ship or a boat off course. So an anchor is an essential piece the kind of security you need. The early Christians in the Roman Empire knew the importance and the significance of an anchor. If you were to visit the Roman catacombs where Christians were buried back in the early part of the Roman Empire, you would see this symbol of the anchor presented. Uh, the, the Christian fish is also another popular sign. The dove representing the Holy Spirit as well. But the anchor is one of those main symbols that they clung to because they knew how essential it was to have an anchor when you're facing persecution and opposition in your faith. They have this steadfast anchor of the soul, and no sooner is this presented than that anchor moves into the inner place behind the curtain. The anchor is a hope for us that is within the very inner part of the tabernacle or the temple. This is the holy of holies, the place where the very presence of God is represented and depicted. It's a hope that represents where Jesus is, where he has gone now as a forerunner on our behalf. So before we go any further, let's go back to the three main reasons why someone may break their promise. We've seen these first two, but the last is an overpromise. But here we see a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is gone. This demonstrates the most difficult part of God's promise to Abraham, to bless the world that Jesus would accomplish, that Jesus would fulfill, even though we may not experience the complete fullness of it now. But Christ has overcome the power of death. He has overcome the power of sin. And now is at the right hand of the Father. We see this in a couple of other positions or a couple of other verses, rather. Here, earlier in Hebrews, it talked about after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Romans 8.34, Paul says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The holy of holies is a place where heaven and earth meet. It's the very throne room or footstool of God. When it says in our text that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, it depicts that throne room setting that the Holy of Holies also represents, the place behind the curtain, that place where our hope, the anchor, has gone into. It's a very abstract concept, I know, but the whole point of this is that it's impossible for God to overpromise. God has already accomplished the most difficult, the most costly part of his promise to Abraham to bless the world. 
through Christ. So we see here that Christ has gone into, as a, into this place behind the curtain as a forerunner on our behalf. The hope that we have is like an anchor, but it's not just this abstract concept. It's an anchor that has a name in Jesus. Christ is the forerunner on our behalf. A forerunner, as the name suggests, someone who has gone ahead. It could refer in a military context to scouts or like a special force advance party to go ahead to prepare the way for the rest of the forces to come behind it. It could refer to a ship or a boat going off ahead of the fleet to prepare the way. It could refer to a runner in a pack of people who breaks free from the pack and goes ahead. In either case, the, the point is that there are more coming behind. This inner place behind the curtain is the most secure place of refuge we could possibly have, as it is the very throne room of God. This place is the place where we have the ultimate security, the ultimate place of our hope realized, and Jesus has already gone there as a forerunner on our behalf. This is a display of God's promises lived out, God's promises accomplished, God's promises are unfailing. And it is our hope that we can grab onto. In all, what we see here is this idea that our hope is as sure as what God has said. And it's as secure as what Jesus has done. It's as sure as what Jesus has accomplished and what God has promised. But let me ask this morning, do you know this hope? Do you have this anchor? If you're not sure, or if you know that you don't, we would love to talk with you after the service about what that looks like. It comes through faith in Christ by placing your hope in him alone. He is the one whose promises are unfailing. You know, we started off with this quote regarding Lewis and Clark and the expedition that they were on. And we quoted these words about some of the problems with an expedition, that there are no experts, no maps, no sure guides who could lead them safely and successfully. Praise God that that is not our predicament. Because we have the sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. We have the one who has gone as a forerunner to lead us safely and successfully. The promises of God are unfailing. And God has fulfilled his promises to us through Christ so that we might have hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For the fact that your promises are trustworthy, that they give us hope in this present day, in this current moment, to continue on in our faith. Lord, we want to be, as the text told us, imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We want to be people who endure, who per persevere, even in the face of opposition and struggle. So God, would you give us this hope, remind us, Father, that your promises are unfailing that your purposes are unchanging. Lord, we look to you knowing that you are faithful. We look to you, God, and know that you have already gone ahead of us to prepare the way. So Lord, may we have this hope and live with it boldly, even now, even today. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.